And if you would take out your copies of God's Word with me and turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're back in Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 9 will be in verses 18 through 29 today. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's on page 8. Page 8, as we go through some of the foundations of the Bible, the foundations of reality. All that we know that is true finds its basis here in this book. So now we turn to Genesis 19, 9, excuse me, in verse 18. Listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us now go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on this text that's in front of us. Our Father, we come to this text in part horrified, in part perplexed, and I ask that you would help us to know what is here, to help us be prepared to avoid what we see here, and to be prepared to receive the grace for when we don't. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I have found myself doing more and more as I embrace this role of fatherhood is being prepared. I've been taking on more and more things to load into my pockets for just those things where you just never know. And it's gotten a little out of hand as I've ascended from dad to full geek by buying a pocket organizer, which I actually have with me, uh, to contain all of these things that I have with me. For you dads, I'll be happy to show it to you afterwards. I know you'll like it. But one of the things about being prepared for the things that we don't expect in life, we often neglect to prepare for the things that we absolutely know are going to happen in our lives. And beyond just the usual, well, we know we have to go shopping, we know we have to prepare our houses for winter, we know we have to do all of those things. One of the things that we neglect being prepared for is our own propensity to sin. We know that we are going to be tempted, if we're honest, we're going to be tempted with sin today. 
In fact, I would say we are all going to be tempted to sin before this service is out. So what are we doing to prepare for that? Are we taking any measures at all to avoid this? Well, if the answer is no, this is a marvelously instructive passage for us. The reason why, and this is something I think we should do with every text of Scripture that we approach, we should always ask, why is this passage here? I think the reason why this passage is here is because this will show us why the rest of Genesis is the way that it is. We've just gone through in these several first chapters how God creates a world and creates it perfect. Then Adam and Eve come along Sin is introduced into the world and the whole world falls apart, such that we get to the point in Genesis chapter 6 where every thought of every man's heart is only evil continually. It's bad. So bad that the Lord sends a flood and drowns not only all but one family of humanity, but all of the creatures as well to purge the world of this sinful blight that's come upon us. We might think, well, good. Problem sorted. We've gotten rid of all the evil people. Therefore, we've gotten rid of all evil, haven't we? Well, the problem is, is evil was stowed away on the boat. And in fact, we found it even amongst the family that built the ark itself. And we're going to see the reason why Redemption, the history of redemption doesn't stop in chapter 9 of saying, and all the bad guys were killed and all the good guys lived happily forever after. We find there's this whole bloody history of sin continuing. And we're going to find it pick up right here in Genesis chapter 9, coming even from Noah himself. And what this is instructive for us and why I start this sermon with the idea of being prepared for sin is one, sin is horrible, and two, sin lasts. What we're going to see here is the generational effect of sin that takes place right here in chapter 9. So if you're going to take a look at your outline, which is on the back of the prayer guide in your bulletin, we're going to take a look at two things today. The first point being that the best of men are subject to sin. The best of men are subject to sin. And number two is that the consequences of sin can last, oftentimes far more than we would like to think. And hopefully, what this is going to promote in us is one, a sense of humility. If Noah can fall to sin, so can we. And number two, that when we do sin, it's not just contained to us. We're connected to each other. Our sin affects each other. While we'll never be able to get rid of it entirely, perhaps this will give us another motivation to continue to stay close to Jesus, to continue to grow in him so that the effect of this is minimized. So let's take a look as we get into this passage. Here we start in verse 18 with something of a mini genealogy. As we've been going through Genesis, you'll see all these lists of names. These are not just the points where we can nod off in our scripture reading plans, but are actually telling us this is a new chapter. This is a prologue of what we're going to be focusing on. In chapter 5, we saw this was going to be, the focus was going to be on Noah's family. And now we're getting an even narrower focus as we're going to take a look at his sons. 
particularly one of Noah's grandsons. You'll notice while Shem, Ham, and Japheth have a lot of sons, as we'll actually see in chapter 10 next week, but we have a particular focus on one of them, which is Canaan, a grandson of Noah, the son of Ham. This is important to us, as we'll see to the original audience who's hearing this. These are the people that have just been released from Egypt, God's chosen people, the Israelites. And they're about to go possess the land that God has given to them. And who is in that land right now in this point of redemptive history? Well, it's the Canaanites, filled with wicked people. Where do these folks come from? We're getting a sense of that right here in this opening passage, telling us about the genealogy and where we are. Now, as we get along here in verse 19, we're getting prepared for 10 and 11. We're going to find out everybody on earth is coming from this family. One of these three sons is going to make the rest of the world, the table of nations that we'll see in chapter 10. So we get to chapter to verse 20. We have a clean slate. What is Noah going to do? Well, in verse 20, it says that Noah began to be a man of the field, of the soil. Commentators point out that this word began, when it, when it shows up, as it will in the next couple of chapters, this does usually not mean the beginning of a good thing. We'll see later on that they began to build a tower. <laughs> we began to plant a vineyard. This is where the ominous, scary music would start. This was a movie. Here he is planting a vineyard. Now, this is not where the sin is yet. The sin comes from Noah drinking the wine so much that he becomes drunk and behaves like this in his tent. This is a really shameful thing. This is the embracing of one of the trying to pull back what we see in Genesis chapter 3. We are now uncovering nakedness is now no longer a holy thing as it was in chapters 1 and 2. But this is now a mark of shame, something that should be covered up, a marker that we are sinful people and are vulnerable. But here Noah is in his stupefied state, is peeling that off and has become vulnerable. Um, The Bible Talk podcast points out this is a similar replay of chapter 3. Here we have a fruit that we're, being, that we're eating and as a result are producing more sin. A little recast of what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. The problem is not solved. And in fact, this is going to be a theme we're going to see throughout the rest of Genesis and indeed the rest of the Old Testament. We're going to be looking for the solution to the sin problem. It's like, well, maybe our problem is we don't have a king. If we could just have a king, then things would be set in order. Well, the kings are sinful too. Well, if only we had a priestly system, then we would realize and get our act together. And we find even the priests are corrupt. And they say, well, maybe if we just had prophets that could explain to us what the priests were trying to tell us. But they don't listen to them either. And it goes on and on and on, the problem of sin persisting. This wall between us and God, which is not broken until Jesus comes. That's what all of this is leading to. But we have to be told again and again and again that the solution to the sin problem is not within us. 
It's not even within great men like Noah. One of the commentators that I read had put it this way, that Noah, at the start of the the ability to build a fresh society, a new world, and we find him drunk and naked in his tent. What's really refreshingly honest about the Bible is we don't have legends here. We don't have hero worship in the Bible. The best of men, as has been said, the best of men are men at best. And what we see here in Noah is a sinful man. And the Bible does not try to hide that. Because the Bible is not trying to get you to worship a saint. The Bible is not trying to tell you that this person is perfect. They're trying to show you by way of contrast, don't look here, look to Jesus. That's where you're going to find perfection. That's where you're going to find hope. Not even in a man who is willing to be obedient to God for a hundred straight years to build a boat with that kind of faith. No, 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 no. He can wind up naked in his tent drunk. But the Bible also doesn't keep its focus here. As one of my old seminary professors points out, the real thing that we're wanting to look at here is this theme of blessing and cursing. Because that's what's going to show up again and again throughout Genesis. So what we're going to actually find out now is what is one of his son's reactions to this sin. That's what we're going to look at here. So he's uncovered. He's in his tent. This is a very shameful thing. It's hard for us to grasp the shame of this in a culture that's become so free with sexuality. But this is a, this is a problem. But we get here in verse 22. It says, and Ham, the father of Canaan, we're going to keep hearing that over and over. They want you to know where the Canaanites are coming from. Father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, as we will see, as we read, from this incident, we're going to find a whole line of descendants is being cursed because of this. And most of us, if you're asking good questions, and you should be asking good questions of the Bible, the Bible can take your hard questions. We ask these questions to say, why is this seems like a really out of proportion response to seeing someone's nakedness and going out and telling someone else? In fact, we have such a difficult time trying to understand that, that we then read more things into the passage than is there. There have been a lot of things saying, it's like, okay, well, I mean, it can't be that. It can't just be a look. So Saul has to mean something else. Saul has to be a euphemism. Maybe he's violated his father. Or some would say he violated Noah's wife. And maybe this is the reason why all of that's the case. It's not. The sin of Ham was looking at his father's nakedness. Because the reason why we know that is because the solution to this was Shem and Japheth not seeing that and describing how they went about not seeing it, walking backwards with the garment in front of them so that they wouldn't be able to see and covering him. That was the solution for it. Now, it also is worth clarifying, this is not just a case of Ham being in wrong place, wrong time. He was coming in to have their meeting with Noah about their quarterly finances, seeing how the vineyard is going, and all of a sudden is confronted with something he didn't want to see, and backs out of the tent. That's not what's happened here. 
And some of this is because when we take a really close look at the language, they give us some hint as to what's going on here. So when we look real close at this, and again, I've had some help from my former Hebrew teacher, but when we look at he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, then it says, then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders. It can still be properly translated a garment, but the language there says the garment, which would stand to reason Noah has uncovered himself with his clothing, and his clothing is right there next to him. And Ham has taken this clothing and instead of using it to cover his father, instead takes that away and now goes out to proclaim to his brothers, (laughs) look what dad's doing. It's this disrespect of his father, the joy of seeing his father in this shameful state and going and spreading it around. This is where it confirms Ham's sin. Now, we have become so accustomed to breaking the fifth commandment that we don't see that even that as shocking anymore. We've become so enculturated that it's actually a good thing to rebel against your parents. Find your own identity. They don't know what they're talking about. That we've reduced the sinfulness of that. That the respecting and honoring of your parents is something that God actually cares quite deeply about. And Ham here shows that he does not have that for his father. And instead goes out and spreads his shame. We don't think like that. We don't care about modesty, respect, or even helping someone else in their sin. Our culture wants to rebel against all of those things. Rebel against any and all authority. And then proclaim any misdoing as loudly and as broadly as we can. That's not the vision that Scripture has. Instead, Shem and Japheth show what that respect is supposed to look like, that they don't indulge at all in glee over their father's sin, but instead recognize the seriousness of what's been done and the solution to that by covering him up. And Scripture goes out of its way to show they haven't looked at all in their covering. And again, as one commentator put it, this is like what we saw in the last half of chapter 3. Nakedness recovered. Here, Shem and Japheth are acting like God does at the end of chapter 3, providing a covering for this shame. Again, this is not Shem and Japheth pretending that Noah hasn't done this, but is instead taking steps to mitigate this sin, to cover for it, and to help end it. So that's what we see here in point number one. Even Noah himself is subject to sin. And even the one who was helping Noah put this boat together and was involved just as much as he was can do the same thing. They can sin. But now we take a look and see that the consequences of sin can last. And this is when he wakes up here in verse 24 and finds out what has happened to him. And he gives and begins in verse 25 with an extremely strong word. Here, the word cursed we haven't seen since God was cursing Satan in the garden. 
and when Cain was cursed from the ground. This is an extremely strong word for cursed, and it has the connotation of binding, which fits very well here with the invocation that he is going to be a servant of servants, or as with the language here calls it, a slave of slaves. The lowest of the low he has called for Canaan. Now, this brings up a rather obvious question. Why is Canaan, the son of Ham, the grandson of Noah, why is he being punished for something that Ham did? Canaan wasn't there, at least as far as Scripture tells us. So why is he getting cursed when Ham does something wrong? Doesn't the Bible say that the, sin, that the sins of the fathers are not going to be punished on the sons? What are we talking about here? Well, there's a number of clarifications that we need to have here. And again, shows us the importance of understanding background and the full scope of the Bible's history. So the first is one where we're a very individualistic culture, where our things only affect us. And the original audience would not have seen it that way. They would, there would have been an expectation that a father's sin is going to affect their sons and punishments will be in kind. Here, Ham was disrespectful to his father, so now his son is going to be disrespectful to his honor as well. The second point is that this isn't a curse against Canaan per se, but more this is going to be the line that is going to come from Canaan. Thirdly, Noah isn't some sort of sorcerer who can conjure up curses and curse whole lines willy-nilly. What this is, is this is an invocation to God. It is saying, may God curse your line for what's been done. Noah can't shape God's will. It's only if the Lord wills it is this going to take place. And what we're going to find out, that the people of Canaan have brought about that curse on themselves by doing all of the things that we suspect Ham of doing. They will take their sexual sin to a far deeper level than, we'll, than we will see in almost any other case. In fact, it will be such as, I think as Leviticus 17 points out, that they have defiled the land with their sin and why it was that they were purged from the land in the first place. So they are not suffering necessarily because of a sin that their father committed that they are then innocent of. They then go about and continue to do those same things. And because of that, we'll suffer the punishment of this invocation. Now, what we're seeing here is the reason why we find this curse amongst them. And we don't find a curse for Noah for his sin. Is it all comes down to where do you run after a sin like that? Do you run to Christ or do you run deeper into sin? What we saw from the Canaanites was running deeper into sin. So therefore, running deeper into God's curse. And that's what we see as we'll look at when we get through the rest of redemptive history, this continued spiral further and further down. And even though it was only Canaan's line that was sinful, we'll find out that the other three sons of Ham didn't do a whole lot better. The descendants of Ham built such great cities, perhaps you've heard of them, One of, a couple of them were Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And that we see the beginnings of a sexual sin and disrespect beginning here in Ham and only increasing more and more as you go down the line. And it's meant for us to look at this and say sin has lots of consequences. You can't keep sin in a box or in a boat. It will continue to spread out. And the, long, and the more we are not cognizant of that, the more we don't take any efforts to prevent those things, we'll continue to see more disaster. You can't scoop more fire into a house and expect it's not going to grow. It will just consume. So if there's something in your heart and life that's being poked at right now, saying it's like, hey, there's a thing you need to be dealing with here. It's not going to get any better. Not on its own. If you let it sit there, it will grow. Thing, though, is that it will take a long time for you to see it. We don't get to see the generational effects of this sin for a long, long time. And what's even more so is that the judgment for that sin comes even longer after that. The Canaanites were given 400 years to sin their little hearts out. The Lord is very patient. So we can't take, oh, well, things are going well. God is happy with everything that's going on in my life. I must not have any sins because nothing's going wrong. That's not necessarily the case. We take a stock of what's in our hearts because our sin doesn't just affect us. We are, a, we are united as a covenantal people. The things that happen to one are affected in the other. We don't sin or experience righteousness alone. There is an effect. The Canaanites don't get to blame their ancestor. They committed those same things. But at the very least, Ham can take a look at his life and say, I can see myself in these people. I can see where this began. Now, there is one sidebar issue we do need to deal with here. It's a terrible interpretation of this particular passage that has actually shaped people's views in America. One thought here is people have taken it and say, oh, well, since in verse 19, that from these people, all the rest of the nations come forth, all the rest of the people come from this line, and because we have this son who is being cursed to perpetual servanthood for these other people, there was an interpretation that said, ah, this is where, and again, you can probably hear where this is going, this is where we get justification for slavery. And indeed, Americans took this very passage and said, well, Ham is close to the Hebrew word for black, so this means this is where black people come from, this is a cursed race, so that's why we can enslave them. Now, that's terrible, because that's wrong. And we're going to explain why that is. The only reason why I bring this up is that this was taught. I, I remember I heard, was talking with someone who went to a Christian school, and this was taught right up until the civil rights movement. So this is this has not gone away. So what we'll address is a few things. One, the word for ham is not close to the word for black. So we'll start there. Secondly, the curse was not on Ham. The curse was on Canaan. So we're not going to be able to draw those two parallels anyway. The curse was not over the fact that they were, had a different skin color, if that was even the case. It probably wasn't. 
But the curse was for their sin. It was their character, not their ethnicity, that brought this about. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, is that there is a new blessing that comes. In just a couple more chapters, we're going to hear about the covenant with Abraham. And what we'll find in the covenant of Abraham is any people that blesses Abraham is blessed. So as one commentator had put it, and I'll paraphrase what he's saying, if we're going to try to hold up the curse of Canaan, then we're going to have to ignore the covenant with Abraham. Because in the covenant of Abraham, we're given, here is your way back to blessing. It's by blessing the family of Abraham. We can't put back a curse that the Abrahamic covenant has pulled away. The reason why the Canaanites are cursed is because they cursed the family of Abraham. We don't get to enslave people because of Genesis chapter 9. And again, as has been said many times, but it bears repeating, all the ways in which slavery was practiced in the United States in that dark period of ours was against Scripture. The Old Testament called for the death penalty for man-stealing. There was no concept for ethnic slavery back then as we have now. Nor is this a problem that's over. It continues to happen in actually greater degrees in the world now than it did then. And, if I may be so bold, it's still practiced here in America. We just do it digitally. Pornography is a $10 billion a year business. And most of those people that are being used in that way are being exploited like slaves. It's still happening. It's not out in the fields, but it's on our desktops. We don't get to excuse that sin because of this. Or any sin, for that matter, because of that. Instead, what we proclaim is a hope and a blessing. And that's what we see beginning here in verse 26. When Noah calls, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, who we're later going to see in chapter 10. Again, pay attention to those genealogies. They're important. We'll see that's where the line of Abraham comes from. Now, what's interesting is in verse 27, we talk about may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. There is actual biblical thought that from Japheth, we were to track the rest of these things, become the people of Greece, the Gentiles, you and I. We can be brought in to this blessing that will come from Shem, this blessing of Abraham. And then it goes on here in verses 28 and 29. We play out the rest of Noah's life. He dies. And then we'll go on in chapter 10 and we'll begin the setup for Abraham. So where does this leave us? Well, one, we recognize that there can be generational effects to our sin. And that needs to be kept very closely in our minds. We need to think of every reason we can to not sin. And here's one more. It's not only going to just destroy and corrode your own soul, but it's going to have a downstream effect. This doesn't mean that your children get to blame you for their sin. Just like you can't blame your dad for your sin. But we do create this environment where when sin is tolerated, it's taught. 
So we need to be careful of this. But I want to offer you hope. If you've come from a family where it's just like, yes, sin was an ever-present part of our family, and I feel cursed to follow in this same direction, you don't have to do that because you can have a new father. You can have a new family. You can be brought in to Jesus. No matter how deep your sin is, God's grace is more and can change you. You're not stuck to repeat those same sins anymore. Jesus can set you free from that. So I invite you today, if you've never been a part of Christ, if you haven't been united to him, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, turning from yourself into him, this is the time. You're not going to be able to fight sin on your own. It's just not going to happen. It's more powerful than you are. You need Jesus. And let me also invite you, if perhaps you're sitting there and saying, well, I actually had a great family, but I'm the one messing up the next one. My sin and my past has now put my family in this hardship. Jesus is for you too. And what's wonderful is that from some of the deepest messes that I've seen in families or have been testified to from families, when the Lord changes someone, even if it's been decades of problems, sometimes that shift from sin to embracing of Jesus, that has an effect on a family too. If you were to say, wow, I was a terrible father. Now my children are all out of the house. It's too late for me. No, it's not. When your children see a transformed life, that tells them who Jesus is and will actually probably help in keeping their eyes off of you. If you've been a good father, it's because you've been pointing them to Jesus. If you've been a bad father, it's because you haven't been pointing them to Jesus. But you still can. As long as you draw breath and they're still here, you can point them to Jesus. So do it. And if you say, well, they won't even talk to me anymore, then pray that Jesus will pursue them beyond where you can. There's always hope with Jesus. That's why we look to the blessing here of Shem. Offers up blessing to the Canaanites if they take it. The same's given for you. We have a new and better covenant now, but we celebrate every month of the Lord's Supper. But there is a new covenant in Christ where all of your sins, as we've confessed earlier, can be put on Him, including being a terrible parent, including being a terrible friend, a terrible pastor. One who is led into sin instead of righteousness. The Lord can forgive those things too and set you on the right path. Now, maybe you don't get to see it fixed in your time. Maybe you don't. But the hope of Jesus can last beyond even your ability to do anything about it. Christ can still pursue people beyond what you can do. I've heard of people who have wandered away from Jesus, who had faithful parents praying for them right up until the day of their death. And it was only after the death of their parents did the Lord get a hold 
of someone's heart. So don't lose hope. Jesus is really good. And when you come to him, he will change you. It might not be instantaneously. It might not be that you get to avoid every mistake, as we see here with Noah. But even Noah was not defined by this. In Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith, he gets held up as a faithful example of what it means to follow Christ. Not because of this, but despite this. You don't have to be defined by the thing that keeps you up at night. You don't have to sum up how well you're doing in your Christian life based on how well you're beating one particular sin. What defines you is who's your father. And God offers you adoption papers to say, be mine. Don't be defined by what you do anymore. Be defined by who you are. A son of Christ. A son of the living God. That's what we offer you here. You can change your pedigree. You can be grafted in as a wild branch and brought into a faithful family tree. Christ is the support. Christ is the root. Christ is the vine. And you is the grafted in branch. So yes, avoid sin. Curl back from that as much as possible. There's no joy for you there. But instead, run to Christ. And when you do sin, because you will, but when you do, run to your father. You can't fix it yourself. Run to your father. He'll pick you up, forgive you, dust you off, and carry you the rest of the way. So if you've not done that, please do that. There's no hope for you in yourself, in your family, in what you can prepare for. But instead, run and stay close to Jesus. And there, you will find life and blessing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to be adopted because of the work of your Son. For Jesus' volunteering in your sending of him into the world to die the death that we should have died and to live the life that we should have lived, risen again from death. I pray if there's anyone here who has not been brought into the family of God, that they would be brought in even today, that they would be shown anew for those that are struggling, who are in your family, that they would be reminded of whose they are and that they would desire to look more and more like their father. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.